it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. That's how Charles Dickens starts his 1859 historical novel. But that's also a good way to start the book of Job and describe those first 19 verses that you find in chapter one. Said as we were teaching through Job this quarter on Sunday mornings that I would preach a few sermons from the book. And so I'll preach this one tonight and maybe one more before the month ends on Sunday nights. But when you open up your Bible to Job chapter one, this is exactly what you find. The first five verses describe the life of a very blessed man. He had family, finances and flocks. And then after a heavenly conversation that he knew nothing about in a moment's notice, there was a whirlwind. A hellish one at that. And it took just about everything that Job had immediately in rapid succession. Job loses just about everything but his life. It's a challenging story to read. Indeed, you open up your Bible to Job chapter one and Satan says Job only serves God because he pays to. And in Job one and verse 11, he says, take everything that he has and he'll curse you to your face. And God says, Verse 12, stretch out your hand and just don't take his life. And it begins. Would you notice in Job chapter one, everything that Job loses? It was just read for us a moment ago by Eli. But notice how quickly this begins for Job. In verse 15, he loses oxen and donkey and servants at the hand of the Sabians. In verse 16, it said that a fire from God comes and takes away the shepherds and the sheep. In verse 17, he loses the camels and he loses his servants. And then in what's called a strong wind. All four corners of the elder's brother's house, his eldest son's house, fall in and all ten of his children are taken at a moment's notice. It was the best of times initially for Job, but then it suddenly became the worst of times. Everybody loves a from rags to riches story, but Job chapter 1, 1 through 19 can be called a riches to rags story. As Job is stripped of everything, we could say that he was bankrupt, bereaved and bewildered all in what seems to be just one day. You read this chapter and there's some shocking things. Of course, the conversation between Satan and God and you ask yourself what everybody does. Why does God let Satan hit Job so hard? And then there are the other things. And as surprised as we are with the loss of property and the loss of servants, nothing stings our souls as much as why the 10 children all in one day. And yet I argue that none of those things that happened in the first 19 verses are the most shocking things in this chapter I would argue the most shocking thing in the book of Job and especially in chapter one is what we read in the last three verses that close out the chapter. Job on this occasion, at least up to this point, there's more to come in chapter two. But at this point in his life is suffering more than he probably ever has before. And that's what the text says, beginning in verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe and shaved his head, fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked, I came from my mother's womb. Naked, I will return. The Lord is given and the Lord takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin, nor did he charge God foolishly or with wrong. Job rises up and does the unthinkable. On the worst day of his life, Job maintains his faith. He possesses his faith and he gives us an example that we should follow. People are puzzled by why Job would say the things that he said. But I believe if we study his words and look intently at them, we find a pattern that we should follow as well. It's been mentioned this morning how the Lehman family is hurting. And you think about on one hand the loss of life and the sorrow that remains with us as a result. But then there are individual hurts that we all face. And there are hurts of various kinds. And if we're if we're honest, it'll come on a day just like Job's. It's interesting, as casually as it's mentioned in verse 13, there came a day as if everything was going normal in Job's life. And then all of a sudden there just came a day when his life seemed to just fall in and Job lost everything. 
you and I will experience some days that are just worse than others. Few of us will suffer as much as Job, and I would argue even fewer of us will suffer as much as Job, as consecutively of Job, as Job suffered, and yet we will experience hardship and worse days. I wish I could say we wouldn't, but we will. And so it'll do us no good to sort of bury our heads in the sand and pretend that this won't happen. We'd be better armed and equipped to say, how will we respond when it does? Not if, but when it does. Job says, man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. Job 14 and verse 1. And in these three verses, I believe Job gives us six things that he believed that he did and that he practiced that every one of us need to imbibe ourselves and digest so that no matter when it comes, we can survive the worst days of our lives. Let's study together tonight. Number one, what did Job do? He lamented openly. Job prepares to respond after the last servant has come. You just notice over and over again in chapter one, it's in verse 15, verse 16, verse 17 and verse 19. Individual servant after servant brings Job this bad news and they all end with this statement. And I alone have escaped to tell you. It's sort of a marker to say I only escaped so that somebody could bring you the bad news, but nothing good remains. And finally, we get Job's reaction in verse 20. Job arises. He tears his robe and then he shaves his head. This has long been marked as a sign of ancient Near Eastern lament of anguish. It runs throughout the Bible. It's what Reuben did when he came back to the well. He wanted to get Joseph. Genesis 37 and verse 29. And when Joseph wasn't there, he tore his clothes and he lamented. It's what Joshua did when those soldiers lost the battle in Ai. He didn't know it, but it was because of Achan's covetousness. Joshua 7 and verse 6, he fell to the ground and buried his head in the dust and remained that way all night in anguish and lament. It's what Isaiah said the people of Moab would do when God brought judgment on them. In Isaiah chapter 15 and verse 2, there was this open and honest about the circumstances that were being faced. It's not here, but so far as we can tell, the only thing Job's missing from having the full picture of ancient Near, Near Eastern mourning at this point is the sackcloth and ashes. But it was coming. And Job 16, 15, he'll say it's stitched on him like his skin. His friends come and they bring the tears. Job 2, 11 through 13. Job openly and honestly laments. If we want to survive the worst days of our lives, we've got to learn how to lament openly. What is lament? Lament is not simply to draw attention to ourselves, to be a drama queen or to sort of gain any outside attention, but it's to openly and honestly deal with the emotions that God's given us. It's to be able to realize that we do have physical hurts and pains and God has given us human outlets on how to deal with that. And that's exactly what Job does. I know God wants us to learn how to do this and learn how to practice it because it's all over the Bible. Psalm six and verse seven, the psalmist says, my eyes are filled with tears continually. Psalm 31 and verse three, David again talks about how often he wept. But more than that, there's an entire book of the Bible called what? By Jeremiah, the book of Lamentations. Lamentations 1 and verse 12, Jeremiah says, is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? Do you behold the weeping in this city for my people? She's perished and no one cares. Jeremiah lamented from A to Z in those five chapters. And God wants us to take a note from him and from the rest of the passages in the Bible where other people do the same. Lament is the outward expression of inward sorrow. It's most often characterized by somebody who's lost a loved one, but it's not just that. It can be financial loss. It can be hardship. It can just be depression or just the upside down things that happen in our lives and how we physically respond as a result. The Bible details that as lament, and that's what Job does. 
Again, lament is not despair. It is not to say sorrow without hope. Sorrow without hope is despair and despair is forbidden for the child of God. But lament is also not bottling it all up and pretending as if nothing's bothering me. All is well. All things are held together when we really are broken and struggling on the inside. Job doesn't do that. Job faces his reality. Job doesn't tear himself off from his God. Job doesn't quit his faith. But Job does express how he feels openly and honestly. Because Job's struggling. It's interesting to read John chapter 11. And Jesus tells his disciples in John 11 and verse 11, I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows why he's going. And that makes John 11:33 and John 11:35 all the more interesting because it says he was moved with compassion as he got closer to Lazarus's tomb. And then John 11:35 it says Jesus wept. Now, the question is, why did Jesus weep if he knew what he would do? You know why he wept. Jesus wept because he was truly a human with flesh and blood. And when humans see death and sorrow, it's what they do. And so it's what he did. On the hardest day of Jesus's life in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, Jesus said throughout his whole earthly ministry, I was born to die. That's what I came to do. And yet in Gethsemane, Luke 22:44, Jesus prayed. Jesus sweat like drops of blood. And Jesus cried. Hebrews five and verse seven says he offered up strong prayers and cries to God and the one that was able to save him. And he was heard because of his godly reverence. He openly and honestly lamented. Our world, our society doesn't make this one easy for us to do. Our society says you should hurry up and get on with things as quickly and as soon as possible. I read an article about grief this week in The Washington Post, and they talked about the fact that Americans on occasion, no matter what happens, we're in a rush to get back to normalcy. And it sort of hampers our ability to genuinely and sincerely lament and to deal with our emotions. The average company gives its employees three to seven days of bereavement leave. It's as if to say, okay, you've cried to get over it and not to mention the off repeated. Don't cry. Be strong as if somehow weeping makes you weak or don't be a crybaby. Don't weep about it when exactly that's exactly what God often wants us to do. When Jacob died, the people in Egypt, not the Israelites, the people in Egypt wept for Jacob for 70 days. Genesis 50 and verse three. When Moses died and the same thing's true about Aaron, Deuteronomy 34 and verse eight and numbers 20 and verse 29, they wept for 30 days. Because those men had lost their lives. It's a right thing to do. It's a right response to have to be open and honest about our sorrows and about the things that we feel. And it's exactly what Job does. Eugene Peterson comments on the Psalms and he talks about how we can be honest based on what we read and find in the Psalms. And he says it's easier for us to be honest with God about our hallelujahs than it is to be honest with him about our hurts. But God demands that we be open and honest with both. Says in a fallen world, sadness is an of sanity. You see all of this brokenness around you, all of this hardship and all of this hurt. And to pretend that it doesn't bother you, he says, would be insane. The right thing to do would be to respond with sorrow and to openly and honestly lament. And that's exactly what Job teaches us as he openly and honestly does the same. Every one of us will do this differently. And just because you don't see a person doing it on the outside doesn't mean that it's not taking place within. I just want us to appreciate the fact that when we sorrow, when we face tragedy and trauma of any kind in our lives, One of the things we need to do if we're going to be able to push through and make it is to openly and honestly deal with those emotions as God would have us to. It's not despair without hope, but it's to honestly pour out our hearts before God. Psalm 62 and verse eight and reckon with the feelings that we have. This is not the only thing that Job would do, but it's appreciative that he starts here. He cuts off his hair. He tears his clothes as a sign to say what's happening with this robe is what's happening in my heart. And he expresses his grief. Don't bottle it up inside. When you're broken, express it. 
God's given us permission. He's wired us in such a way. It does not make us strong to suppress the feelings we have when we're struggling, because it's exactly what God wants us to do, to use that outlet and to be honest. Now, here's number two. Job worshiped God. Satan said, you take everything that he has in verse 11 and he'll curse you to your face. As Job gets ready to speak, I can't help but imagine that Satan is on the edge of his seat waiting for the cursing. Imagine the surprise that was his, though, in verse 21 when Job says, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then in verse 20, it says he fell down after that lament. And the text says he worshiped God. That's exactly what Job did. He opened up to God and he said, God, I'm going to offer up my worship to you. If we want to survive the worst days of our lives, we need to worship God. Now, that means two things for us. Number one, that means I need to be present in worship. I need to get myself into the building so that I can be among the people of God. There's something about the assembly that reorients us to what life is really all about. Hold your hand in Job 1. Go to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is written by a man named Asaph who's struggling. He's struggling with the question we often struggle with, and that is, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous seem to be overlooked and oppressed? And he's going through this thing and saying, I don't know if it's worth it to worship God. I don't know if God's worthy of my worship. And yet Psalm 73, after he struggles with this, notice verse 17. Psalm 73, 17, Asaph says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, that would be the Old Testament church, so to speak, their place of worship. Then I understood their end. What changed everything for Asaph? Worship. It's exactly what changed it for him. Hebrews 10, 24 says, let us consider one another to stir up to love and the good works, not abandoning the assembling of ourselves together as the habit of some is, but provoking one another and considering one another. And so much the more as we see the day approaching, he went and he was present in the worship of God. How can Job at this point in his life still worship his God? How can he still believe his God is worthy of worship? Because he appreciates the fact that no matter what happens on this time side of life, God has always been and always will be worthy of worship. We've got to be present. But then when we get here in the times when we're struggling the most, we have to actually be participants and make ourselves worship. That means we need to sing the songs. We need to the best of our ability to be engaged and to pray the prayers to observe the supper with the rest of the saints, to give of our means from the heart, to study the word and study the Bible together. And I realize that sometimes this is challenging when we want to think about everything else. But what really matters the most in that moment, and that is the worship of almighty God. But it's what's going to ultimately push us through as we become active participants in worship. Jesus said God is a spirit and those that worship him must do it in spirit and in truth. John 4, 24. We need our hearts reoriented and reacclimated to what's my life really all about. Charles Spurgeon talked about worship in difficult times, and he said it's easy to sing when we can read notes by daylight. But he is the skillful singer who can sing when there is not a ray of light by which to read, who sings from his heart notes of gratitude that pour forth in songs of praise. Spurgeon says, you know, anybody can sing in the day when everything's going well, when you can see the notes, when everything in your life is lined up just how you want it. But can you still worship him when everything in your world is turned upside down? Not only can you, we must. You might hear these words tonight and say, Hiram, I'm in a financial storm. You don't know anything about it. It's easy to say those words from where you stand. Or I'm in a relational sort of difficulty or hardship of various kind. And you might say, that's easy for you to say because you're not suffering the way I'm suffering. And you know, that might be right. But if you are suffering to a great extent, it's necessary for you to say you need to say it. I will worship God and then follow through and do it. It's impressive to see Job was already a worshiper. Look at Job chapter one and verse five. He was already offering up these sacrifices for his children and anybody else in his family who might have violated the will of God. 
And that teaches us something. It teaches us that what we do in times of pleasure and prosperity is probably the very same thing we'll do in times of pain and difficulty. And so it means every one of us needs to develop right now and rehearse right now proper and healthy worship practices for the time to come. We need to already be preparing ourselves for whatever may come in our lives that we don't know about. When those worst days come, let's just continue in the righteous habits that we've already begun. That's what Daniel did. Daniel 6 and verse 10, the Bible says when he knew the decree was signed, he just went and prayed like he had always done before. It wasn't anything new for Daniel. He just kept on with worship. On the hardest day of Jesus's life, John 18 and verse two, it says Judas knew he always went to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. And Judas knew he could find him there. He had built this this ritual, this habit of righteousness and of worship. And it's what he did. You want to survive the worst days of your life right now. Make up your mind. I'm going to worship God every time I come into the assembly. I won't just be present, but I'll be a participant. I won't be silent during any of the songs. I'll be engaged in the prayers because I really want to focus on God and what he's what he's owed. This doesn't mean when you come into the assembly, no matter what you're dealing with, block that out of your mind. I would argue bring it with you and God will shrink it down to its normal size and show us what ultimately and what really matters. God's not asking us to not think about things that we can't help but think about because they're on our minds. But God is saying, bring those things before me and worship. And in light of who I am, see those things for what they really are. In the grand scheme of things, ultimately minimal based on what I'm going to do for you in any eternity. T.M. Lerman, she is not a Christian. She's not even religious so far as I can tell, but she's a professor of anthropology at Stanford. And she writes about religion. And in 2013, she wrote an article in The New York Times called Why Religion and Going to Church is Good for You. Now, other people have written about the same thing. But in this article, she talks about an experiment she did. She went to different kinds of churches, all different kinds. Not as a member, not as a participant, but just merely as a researcher to try to find out why religious people are healthier, why religious people seem to be more emotionally stable and various things. She and other researchers concluded that it is healthy for you. They talked about the social aspects and all of the benefits. But in the end, they said, we really can't tell you why that's the case. We really can't figure it out. But you should just go to worship anyway. The smartest people in the world can't figure it out. I don't have to tell you this, but Job didn't go to Stanford. But Job knew this. I'm broken. I'm hurting. I should probably worship God. I'm struggling. And what else should I do except bow before the king of kings and give him the worship that he deserves? What Job says at the end of verse 21, blessed be the name of the Lord. This word blessed is sometimes used for people that are of higher, higher standing and they speak it down to their subordinates. So kings would bless servants, masters would bless slaves. But when you find this phrase in the Old Testament from a human being to God, it can't mean blessed in the same way. Job can't really promote God or bless God. No, when you find it in this regard, it's like a call to worship. And that's why the NIV translates this. Let the name of the Lord be praised. Job is doing more than worshiping here. The phrase Job uses to say blessed or praised be God's name. Job is calling on his community to say, hey, worship and praise my God with me, which makes this all the more astounding and remarkable. Even on his ash heap, he's not just saying he needs to worship God. He sits in ashes and says to all of his contemporaries, the God that I serve even now is worthy of worship. So Psalm 113 verses two and three says from this time forth and forevermore, the name of the Lord is to be praised from the rising of the sun to his setting. Let the name of the Lord be praised. Same form, same word. It's this call to worship, which says to us when we suffer, when we're going through hardship, it can be instructive for those that are not Christians. They'll look on us and say their faith really is for real. They really believe that he's good and he's kind and he's worthy of worship and they will praise him even in the rain. 
Job told his friends in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And he trusted all the way until he saw his redemption at the end. In the difficult days of our lives, we need to build a habit and make up our minds. If I don't do anything else, I will worship him. Here's number three. Job accepted life's humbling reality. You know what it is there in verse 21. Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what Job believed. In the end, he can't take anything with him. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 15 says, as a man has come out of his mother's womb, he'll return. He won't take anything in his hands from all of his labor. Paul picked up on this and he told the young preacher Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 7. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world. And then Paul says, it is certain that we will carry nothing out. Nobody packs a carry on bag to take to glory. If we're smart, we've sent our treasures up ahead of us. Jesus says, lay up treasures in heaven, Matthew 6, 19 through 21. But we won't take anything from here. Why does Job say this in this moment on this occasion? Job is saying, listen, if God takes everything from me, I'll begin where I started or I'll end where I started. Job realizes it was never his to begin with. And so he says, I came with nothing and I'll leave with nothing. That's how it'll be. Stoics in the first century, in the time of Jesus, Paul ran into some of them in Acts 17. They practiced what was called a sort of visualization, a negative visualization, excuse me. And what this was is Stoics believe, you know, what? your life's probably going to be hard. It's probably going to be terrible. And so instead of getting your hopes up, you should just sort of prepare for this ahead of time. In fact, one Stoic said, when you kiss your son goodnight, always remember he might be dead in the morning. They said, listen, if you really want Always imagine things worse off than they currently are. And we borrow from some of their philosophy. You ever said this before? Hope for the best. But what? Expect the, that's stoicism. That's not Christianity. Hope for the best, but expect the way. Hey, life may get bad. You just don't want to get your hopes up. But if you're a Christian, you can't get your hopes up high enough. Colossians one and verse five says our hope is in heaven. This is not stoicism on the part of Job. It's honesty. Job says, I don't have anything except that which God has given me. First Corinthians four and verse seven. And it's required of stewards that a man be found faithful. And so in view of God giving me these things, I'm not an owner. I'm an overseer. And when we appreciate this humbling reality of life, we'll take nothing out and we'll take no one out. Everything that we have has been given to us by God on loan. And Job appreciates this reality and it changes his relationships to his things, to his stuff, to his family members. And on the worst days of our lives, we need to appreciate that every single thing that we have, everything that we have is ultimately borrowed. It ultimately belongs to God. There's that off stated quote. A millionaire died. A bunch of people showed up to his funeral. And as they were lowering the casket, one man said to one of the family members, he whispered, how much of it did he leave behind? And the family member said he left all of it because we won't take anything out. Psalm 49 and verse 17 says when the rich depart, they don't take anything and their glory does not depart with them. Job realized that in the end, he couldn't take any of his stuff with him. He couldn't take any of his people with him. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. He says, I don't have anything. But that's OK. It was all God's to begin with. I was simply borrowing it. Psalm 24 and verse one says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all of them that dwell therein. This is what Job appreciated. When we realize this point in view of the worst days of our lives to appreciate what we currently have and to be good stewards over it and appreciate it while we do have it and realize that it won't last. Sometimes we say it was good while it lasted. That means two things, right? Things in this life can be good, but things in this life do not last. But when you're suffering, this is great news 
Because if you leave like you came, then that means the sorrows you experience, they don't depart out of this life with you. Kendrick Lamar is right when he says what happens on earth stays on earth. And that's true for Christians. It won't go with you. Naked, you came from your mother's womb. You return that very same way. And the bad things that happen in this life, they don't get to depart with us. If we're Christians, it'll end here. Paul says our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are perishing, the things perishing are temporary. The things that remain are eternal. For we know that if the earthly house of this tabernacle be dissolved, we have a house, a building from God, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Second Corinthians four eighteen, all the way through chapter five and verse one. Paul says it won't last. And Job accepted that humbling reality of life. Now, here's number four. Acknowledge God's sovereignty. Job says the Lord is given and the Lord has taken away. Question who gave Job everything he had? God, who took away everything Job had? Satan did. And Job 1 and verse 12, God gives Satan permission to take the things that Job had. He says, take everything, but don't don't touch his life. Job didn't know about that conversation, but Job's statement is still important. Job is saying in his view of things, God's in total control. The Lord is given. The Lord is taken away. God is sovereign over everything. He's in complete control. And Job accepts that reality. And if you and I are going to persevere on the worst days of our lives, we need to appreciate the same. God is in total control. We teach this song to our children. He's got the whole world in his what? In his hands. Right. But we need to sort of modify the lyrics and let this truth press just a little bit closer to home. He has the whole world in his hands. Yes. But he has my whole world in his hands. He's in charge of everything. God is completely sovereign. And for you and me, if we're Christians, that's good news. Who's in control of everything? You say God is. Psalm 118 and verse six. Is he on your side or not? The Lord's on my side. I won't fear. What can man do to me? If that's true about us, we can exult no matter what happens because God's in control. Notice the 317 verses in the New Testament. All of these verses in with 17 makes them easy to remember that drives home this proof that God is with us on our side and he's the one that gives us everything and he's in total control. Look at Acts 14. Turn your Bible to Acts 14 and notice verse 17. Paul is in Lystra and Paul is preaching to pagan individuals who don't appreciate God as the creator and sustainer of all things. In fact, they're on the verge of worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And in Acts 14 and verse 17, Paul says God left not himself without witness. And that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Even if you don't worship God, where do you get everything from? You get it from God. Paul says that's where it all starts. Look at the second 17 verse. Go to First Timothy, chapter six and notice verse 17. First Timothy six and verse 17. Paul tells Timothy, charge them that are rich not to be high minded, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in God. And notice what he says at the end of this verse. God gives us all things richly to enjoy. How did you get what you have? God gave it to you. The same thing he told the people in Lystra. And notice the last one. James one in verse 17. James one seventeen says every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above from the lights with whom is no variation nor shadow due to change. The 317 verses of the New Testament says everything that we have has come to us from God and God's in control of everything. He's in total control. And that's what Job appreciated. And that's what Job knew that got him through. God's in total control. And if he's in control of these things, though they seem to be out of step, though my life's in total upheaval, it'll eventually be righted by the one who controls it all from start to finish. Denzel Washington in the movie The Great Debaters, he was amping up his debate team, getting them ready to go on foreign soil, really, or at least out of the South and debate people that they hadn't before. 
sort of had this back and forth chant with them at one point in the movie as they're going through their exercise to get ready for the debate. And it went like this. He is the professor. Professor Tolson would say to them, who is the judge? And they respond, God's the judge. And he'd say, well, why is God the judge? And they were to say, because he decides who wins and loses, not my opponent. And then they do it again. Who is the judge? God's the judge. Why is he the judge? Because God decides who wins and loses and not my opponent. Job says God is sovereign. Satan says, well, hey, you curse. He'll curse you if you take everything he has. And you could say about Job. Job says, who's the judge? God is. He decides in the end who wins and loses. And he says, Job, you're a winner. Job, your faith will see you through. God is sovereign. Remember that God is in total control. And I think we need help sometimes remembering this. In our days of prosperity, we might think of ourselves as the managers and God is our assistant. But in days of hardship, we're reminded of who is ultimately in control. Here's some things we can do to keep ourselves on base with God's sovereignty in days of difficulty. Remember that God can do more than you ask or even think. Ephesians 3 and verse 20. God's in total control of the world. Paul said that. But number two, God's been doing what he's doing longer than we've existed. And he'll be doing it when we leave. Psalm 90 and verse two says from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. Job realized that God was eternal. God was in total control. And when we realize the same, we'll appreciate his sovereignty. Number three, say the four powerful words. The most powerful words we can probably say in our prayers are these four powerful words. Your will be done. Do we really mean that when we say, it? you know, Jesus on the hardest day of his life? I know we need to say when we're struggling because that's exactly what Jesus said on the hardest day of his life. Not my will. But your will be done. And in the model prayer, Matthew six and verse 10, he said, pray these words. Your, our father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And then he said the four words, your will be done. You want to remind yourself God's in total control every time you pray about whatever you pray. Say, God, in the end, I hope it goes your way more than mine. And if my way is not your way, reorient me, rewire me in such a way that our wills will eventually align. And I hope it always does go the way you want it to go. Take inventory of your life and be honest and remember God's kind providence. All the good things that have happened in your life, very few of them happen because you organized them just the way you thought they should go. If you were to tell somebody your life story tonight, many of the good things that you've experienced, you would honestly admit and say, you know what? I was just kind of there and she was kind of there. We met and then things just kind of happened. You know, I love this job and I really wasn't looking. I was hoping that I would go into this career field and then it just kind of happened. Psalm 84 and verse 11 says no good thing will he withhold from those who trust in him. Remembering the sovereignty of God makes us realize and appreciate God's providence has been working things out in our lives for such a long time. And so even when we can't see things as we would like to appreciate that he's in control and then remember he's in the best position to help us. He has the most resources and he wants to more than anybody else. David said in Psalm 18 and verse two, he's a rock, a refuge, a shield, a horn of salvation. David wrote that psalm on the day when he had been delivered from all his enemies. And he realized God's on my side if nobody else is. Remember the sovereignty of God, that God is in complete control and that control is on our side. It's not just to say, well, God runs the whole world, but God is actually for us and on our side. That power is at our aid and it'll help us get through our worst days. Here's number five. Count your remaining blessings. Job said the Lord is given, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, Job had more hardship on the way in chapter two. His skin will eventually break out into these boils that Job sort of struggles with and his suffering would increase. But at the current, Job realizes, hey, I've still got something to praise God about. My life's not in the complete worst condition that it could be in. And when we suffer, when things are going terribly with us, as hard as this one may be, 
count the remaining blessings that still exist in our lives. When we had our widowhood seminar, Dean Miller talked about the book of Job. And one of the things he said was even on Job's worst day, he still had several things of which to praise God. And he noted these. He said, Job, he still had friends. His friends showed up. Now, they weren't the best throughout all of it, but they showed up and they were friends. He had servants, those that remained, that brought him the news about his loved ones and about his property. He still had his wife. She wasn't the best cheerleader, but he still had his wife. And he still had a God in heaven who loved him. On Job's worst day, Job still had blessings that remain. And on our worst days, it's going to matter that we're able to see things as they truly are and appreciate that which does remain. If the enemy can get us down in the dumps and thinking about how terrible things are and how bad they are, and we don't look up to see the blessings that God still holds out for us, then he already has us. Our greatest virtue in times of hardship may, may be our ability to count our many blessings and name them one by one and remember that there's still much good. It said about Bob Hope one time when he received an award, he got up there and when he got the award, he said, I don't deserve this award. But then again, I've got arthritis and I don't deserve that either. So he took the award and went and sat down. Hope said, listen, there are some things in our lives that we receive that we don't like. But guess what? There are also good things that come and we need to learn to see those and appreciate those. Ephesians 5 and verse 20, Paul said, thank God for all things at all times through the name of Jesus Christ and everything. Give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ concerning you. First Thessalonians 5:18. count your remaining blessings. Make yourself do this. Find the smallest thing. I know it may be very small. You may say, Hiram, look, I'm at about ground zero right now. This is extremely difficult to do. Find the smallest thing you can think of and make yourself look up to heaven and say, Thank you, almighty God. You have not abandoned me. You've not forsaken me. There are blessings that yet remain. Job was able to do this on his darkest day. Job was able to say, you know what? I really don't have a lot right now. But God, you're still good. I'm in a storm right now. And yet and still, Job was able to say, Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. What resolve? No wonder God said there is nobody else in the world at this moment quite like Job. You know, in the in the daytime, we can look up and we can see the sun. But in the night, we can see the stars. And I believe that's true spiritually as well. We can see further in the dark than we can in the light. In the dark of our lives, we're able to see beyond the mere surface things and push ourselves to be people of thanksgiving. First Chronicles 16, 34, David says, oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And on the worst days of our lives. We need to count our remaining blessings and realize that we have not been completely abandoned. Now, here's the sixth and final one tonight. On the worst days of our lives, we've got to remember not to blame God. Job in verse 22, it says, and all of this, Job didn't sin or charge God with wrong or charge God foolishly. If you look over at chapter two and verse 10, after his wife kind of provokes him to say, hey, curse God and die. Job says we'll receive good at the Lord's hands and not evil and all of this. Job never sinned. He never blamed God. He could have. He could have said a lot of things, but he didn't blame God. Maybe you've had bad days before. I'm sure we all have. And have you ever done this before? You've had a bad day at work or you just sort of, as we say, got up on the wrong side of the bed and you just you're done with everybody. And so you're like, look, today I'm on the you caught me on the wrong day and I'm going to do X and I'm going to do Y just because I'm mad. You just got to give me a pass today because, hey, I'm in a bad mood. I'm caught in the bad way. And so for that reason. I'm going to do X, Y and Z and nobody's going to stop me. I normally don't talk like this, but today's just really not my day. And so here it goes. Job's poise and his compassion 
as well as his integrity on this day, the worst day of his life to not sin at all and to never say anything about God sets him apart from everybody else. We read about in scripture outside of Jesus Christ. He refuses to compromise his integrity. He refuses to sin because he really does trust in his God. James 1, 13 through 15, James says, let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. God can't be tempted with evil. He doesn't tempt any man. Every man's tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. When lust conceives, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. Do not be deceived. Do not say this has happened to me because of God. And Job does not do that. In order to not do this, to be the person that Job was in verse 22, we've got to start with the proper framework of who God is. And then don't allow hardship and difficulty to twist or to distort that view. Now, we've got to be patient with ourselves because we may say things we regret in times of difficulty, but we've got to do our best to say, you know what? God has not changed. The best picture I can find of this is Psalm 77. Coming to a close, turn your Bible to Psalm 77. This is a psalm, again, written by Asaph. He was a part of the worship team in the Old Testament. He was a priest so far as we know. And in Psalm 77, it's a dark day for Asaph and for the people of God. In fact, the first nine verses portray that and tell us how difficult and terrible it was. Notice his question in verse nine. He says, has God forgotten to be gracious? And then he talks about the fact that maybe God has forgotten to show compassion to his people. You see that in verse nine. He said, hey, maybe God's abandoned us. Maybe God's mistreated us. How does he get himself out of the rut? It's in verse 10. This will I do. I will appeal to the years of the right hand of the most high. And then he says some things that he will do. I'll remember your wonders, your deeds. I'll meditate on your good works. What does that mean when he says I will appeal to the years of the right hand of the most high? Asaph says, listen, my life is out of control. The God I thought I knew, it does not seem like he is showing up. Seems like he took some time off. But before Asaph gets ready to say some things about God inconsistent with his faith, he says, wait a minute. I will appeal to the years of the most high. That is to say, let me pull up the receipts and check God's track record and see who he really is. And Asaph says, oh, yes, now I remember his his wonderful works, all the great things that he's done throughout history. And he says, based on that, I can stand in the face of what I would have normally crumbled under. I will appeal to the years of the most high. I'm going to look at God's track record and all he has ever been is good. On the worst, worst days of our lives, when we want to say, why didn't God do? We need to appreciate God never does anything inconsistent with his will. I thought God loved me. We need to remind ourselves nobody's ever loved us more. I thought God would do this and I asked him to do this and he should have. We've got to appreciate God gives orders, but he doesn't take them. And he always does what's right and what's well, even when it doesn't make sense to us. And all that Job endured and all that Job suffered through, he refused to blame his God. He refused to turn his back on the one who gave him everything to begin with. He starts out talking right about God. And in Job 42 and verse seven, it says he ended saying the right things about God. Job makes some mistakes in between those chapters. But in the end, Job perseveres and comes through the worst day of his life by restraining his lips. And rather than wag his finger in the face of heaven, he continues to point his eyes in that direction and says, I will not blame you, but I will bless you because God is worthy of that. I wish I could tell you tonight that your worst days are behind you, that you're never going to suffer any hardship and that the ball's always going to bounce your way and everything is going to go your way and be in your favor. The truth is nobody can tell you that. But if we look at people like Job, we can say something better, even when it doesn't.
what we studied tonight, you didn't really learn anything new. You already knew in the first 19 verses that this life can be mean, it can be harsh, and honestly, sometimes downright unbearable. The first 19 verses really don't teach us anything new. They highlight Job's suffering, but you already knew that life was hard, that people suffer, that we lose loved ones, that this earth in its broken and fallen state can be cruel and harsh. You really don't learn anything in the first 19 chapters. But in the last three verses of chapter one, we learn something that I would argue we wouldn't know without divine inspiration, and that is that no matter how hard it can be, we can make it. Job, if Job could make it, then we could make it as well. Be open and honest about lament. God says you can bring your cares, cast all of your anxieties on me. First Peter five and verse seven. Resolve to fall down before him and worship both and public times of difficulty. It matters that we worship him. Realize life's great reality. We'll leave with what we came with. But that also means our trouble right here where they've begun. Job 121, Job says God's name is to be praised and he refused to sin and speak against God. When the final Job, the real Job, shows up in the New Testament, Jesus the Christ, when he suffers, his enemies poke and prod him and try to get him to curse or to say something out of step with what he knows to be right. And he refuses to do it instead of cursing God. He commits his spirit to God on the worst day of his life. He looks up to God and says, God, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he wants us to commit ours to God as well. Maybe tonight someone needs to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the way to prepare for the what Neil talked about this morning, the last day, the great day when Jesus returns. And it's also the way to prepare for every day in between, whether it be good or bad. To be found in Christ is the best way to live in these days of turbulence in these days of suffering and often in these days of hardship. If we can help you to obey the gospel tonight, we'd be happy to do that. If we can pray with you or pray for you tonight, we'd be glad to do that as well. If this is your invitation, if you need to respond, come now as together we stand and as we sing.